Well, it has been great to be here this last month, and uh, we're excited about what the Lord has in store for the church. Continue to be praying for the Lord to uh, guide the uh, search committee, pulpit committee, as they're seeking uh, the Lord's man for the pulpit. And uh, we are, we'll be heading back to Arizona Wednesday morning, early Wednesday morning, uh, but we will be back in January. So uh, we're glad to be able to be here uh, with you for that. And um, I'm trying to figure out my schedule for next year. And I'll tell you, a lot of things are crazy because we're still trying to figure out how much Leslie's going to be able to travel. And, and uh, so we are, we're hoping, uh, I would like to, by mid-February, we be praying, or praying we can go to Asia. Uh, not sure if that's going to work at that time. We'll have to postpone it a little bit or not. So, um, but we'll be heading back. I wish I could be here through uh, much of your Christmas. I love to see the Christmas program. Uh, bring back a lot of memories, <laughs> a lot of nervousness. <laughs> I've been there. Uh, shaking and trembling, not sure what's going to happen uh, during, during the Christmas program. Uh, the Christmas banquet, I would love to come if for no other reason to bring back some white elephant gifts that uh, I received during the, my time here. I, I, I think, I don't know who brought it. Was it you, Jonathan? I don't know. Someone brought, brought uh, as a white elephant gift. This shows you the age, okay? But cassette tapes, it was my sermon tapes. They brought us a white elephant. They brought us a white elephant gift. And I mean, I thought those were real treasures that should, you know, very valuable. But someone thought it was a white elephant gift. But anyway, um, I hope you can go to the banquet, and it's a great time of fellowship, and always uh, a great time of, of fun. Uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter one. And I want to answer the question this morning, consider the question, who is Jesus Christ? Uh, this is not technically a Christmas message, but it really is a good introduction to the Christmas season. Because obviously the heart and soul of Christianity is Jesus Christ. And Christianity is not just a set of rules or moral morality to follow. Uh, it's not just a, a, a religion. Christianity is a relationship and it is about our relationship with this one that we call Christ. Therefore, it seems important that we have a clear understanding of who Jesus really is. Um, it, it should not surprise us that many people in this world do not really know who Christ is. They understand the name, they, they recognize the name, but they probably could not tell you much about really who Christ is. And I think it's important for us to clearly understand who Christ is. Uh, we call ourselves Christians, we're followers of Christ. So if we don't understand who Christ is, then we are going to be greatly uh, limited in our relationship with Christ. There is a Christmas song um, that's been written in recent years uh, entitled, Who Is He in Yonder Stall? And it asks the question, number of questions throughout the song, goes to the life of Christ. Who is he in yonder, yonder straw, stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? And it goes through his life. Who is he who prays in dark Gethsemane? Who is he on yonder tree 
Uh, who is he who dies uh, in grief and agony? Who is he that uh, from the grave comes and, and, and uh, brings help and, and saves? And of course, the answer to that, he is the Lord of glory. But I want to look even deeper into that uh, this morning and, and asking ourselves, who is Jesus Christ? I remember, you know, you might think this is something that just everybody who's raised and at least in a, in a Bible-believing church would understand <coughs> and would know. But you'll be surprised the number of people, and, I, and I'm sure that maybe even here this morning there are people who, though you come on a regular basis, hear God's Word taught, you could not clearly articulate who Christ is. And some of the things I'm going to say this morning might even shock some of you. It shouldn't, but it may shock some of you. I remember the first, one of the first Bible classes I taught here at Calvary Christian School. It was a junior high. I was asked to fill in, or maybe I was teaching at that semester. I, I don't remember. And uh, there was a, uh, a young girl, uh, I think seventh grade <coughs> or eighth grade, and I began teaching a series on the person of Christ. And I made the statement that Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh. And this young girl just immediately blurted out and said, that's not true. Now you have to understand this, this young girl was the daughter of a pastor of a church here in the area. <coughs> and you would think <coughs> she would have understood uh, and, know, and known that. I'm sure her father believed and, and taught that. I don't think it was something that she had been taught differently. She just had never thought about the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, she had in her mind a distinction. There's Christ and, and, and there's God. And so I, I hope she learned two things. Number one, who Jesus Christ really was, and I hope she learned not to blurt out things in class. <laughs> but um, that was very eye-opening to me that someone <coughs> who is raised in a Christian environment, in, in a Bible-teaching church, in a Christian school even, does not really understand who Jesus Christ is. So I want us to look, beginning in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we're going to walk through this passage a little bit. We'll skip a few verses here and there just for the sake of time this morning, and we'll look at a few other verses that really addresses who is Jesus Christ. We say we're Christians. Uh, we should understand who Christ is. Uh, we're celebrating Christmas. Uh, we need to know who Jesus Christ really is. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Beginning in this passage from the very first words, uh, John identifies Jesus Christ as God. In the beginning, the beginning of what? Beginning of the world. In the beginning, God created in, in before time. In the beginning was the Word. The, and and the, the, in most of your uh, Bibles, Word there is capitalized because it's identifying a person. It's the Greek word lagos, which has the idea of the, 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 the whole embodiment of, of truth, the whole embodiment of, 
uh, it's not just a, a written word, you know. Uh, it, it deals with a broader sense, like, sense. It was the word, and the word he's identifying as Jesus Christ. We'll find here uh, verse 14. Uh, <coughs> says that, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So the word he's talking about became flesh. We beheld. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's identifying Jesus Christ as the Word, the Logos. And it says he was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's pretty strong language, but it can't be any more clear than that. Uh, now, unless you are reading from uh, the Kingdom Hall edition of Scripture, the Jehovah Witnesses uh, mistranslation, uh, then you would, it, it was pretty clear. By the way, that translation says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That is a complete, uh, complete biased, trans that's not a translation. Uh, any Greek scholar will tell you any, any honest translation copies it as, as this. It's very, very clear grammatically. There's not a little article A in there. That makes a big difference. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word who was made flesh. And he was God. <coughs> so the Bible makes that very, very clear. Before I go on from this, let me, let me, just, let me just drive this home a little bit. Because I think this is so fundamentally important because if you don't understand this the rest of everything else we say not, is not really going to make sense keep your fingers there because we're going to come back to, to the gospel of john but turn all the way back in your bibles to the book of first john first and second third john toward the end of your new testament chapter five and verse 20 the last or one of the last verses in this, this chapter. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Then notice that last sentence. This is the true God and eternal life. I mean, there's no question, there's no wavering on this. He's a God or, or a somewhat less than God or, or some type of emanation from God. No, he is the true God and eternal life. Who? Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. <coughs> you can turn also back into the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 13. And there we read about the coming of Christ chapter 2 of the little book of Titus and verse 13 which uh, tells us that we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then one other verse, Hebrews chapter 1, in the first couple of verses of Hebrews, 
describes how he has spoken to us in these last days through his son, by whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, identifying Jesus Christ, the Son, as God. Now, we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christianity has, has really struggled with that. In New Testament times, early church fathers wrestled how to explain that there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who's expressed in three, pers- in three people, three persons, three personalities. It's, it's, it's hard for us to understand. There is no good human explanation of it. I mean, people tried, you know, uh, water, ice, and steam. That's all H2O, and it's all, you know, different. But, that, but they're, they're not the same at the same, always at the same. There is no good illustration of the Trinity because you're dealing with an infinite God. But the Bible makes it very clear that God the Father obviously is God and is worshipped. Jesus Christ is God and is worshipped. And the Holy Spirit is God and is worshipped. And, 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 you know, is not, one is not lesser than the other. They serve different roles. But they are, are one being. We worship God the Father. We love and trust in the work of his Son for our salvation. And we depend upon God the Spirit for our daily walk in life. In fact, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. But the Bible oftentimes uses almost exchanging terminology of, of us being abiding in Christ or indwelt by Christ. Well, how are we indwelt by Christ? We are indwelt by Christ through his spirit. So one is the same. They're, they're not, there are different personalities, but the same being. It's God who became flesh. And just because it's hard for us to understand it or explain it, we believe it, we accept it because it's what God's word teaches. And it's what identifies us as believers. Now, John warns in Scripture that there will come people who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And he says those are antichrists, that God has come in the flesh. And we need to be aware of the fact that it's so important, so basic, so fundamental to understand that who are we celebrating? We're celebrating the birth of the Son of God who came into this world, who was God, who became flesh, as verse 14 says. And we had the privilege, he said, and we personally, John, of beholding his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there really is no middle ground. The Bible clearly states that Jesus Christ is God who became flesh. Secondly, This text goes on to say, uh, he was in the beginning with God, verse 2 of John chapter 1 now again, and then verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So not only is he God who became flesh, but he is the creator of this world and of us. He is our creator. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 adds to this. Oh, we read actually in Hebrews, by him are all things made. 
And then in Colossians chapter 1, we again read that it was through him, through Christ, all things were made. I'm trying to find the verse real fast for you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, speaking of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in the heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Speaking of Jesus Christ. <coughs> you know, the book of Romans explains that creation testifies of God. The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth forth his handiwork. When you look at creation, it is hard to understand how someone can look at creation and believe that everything came about without a creator, without a designer. I, I, I honestly don't have enough faith to be an evolutionist, uh, to believe that the world as we know it came about by accident and by just biological change through, through the ages. When you look at the human body and you see how intricately we are designed uh, and, and mankind and all of his technology and intelligence uh, cannot duplicate the human body. I, I thank the Lord for um, medical advancements today, medical technology. It is amazing what we have available to us. But because of the advance in medical technology, we sometimes think the doctors know everything and have all the answers. And the, and the fact is, if you've dealt much with people who are ill, you realize there's a lot they don't know. And, um, you know, I mean, my, my brother who passed away back in April was in and out of the hospital four times and had a team of specialists and experts, some, supposedly some of the best in the world, they really never did figure out really what happened. Uh, could not explain what was going on. And it was very frustrating. <coughs> and, but it's interesting, as we, as we talk to people, even in the hospital, talk to nurses and others who were there in the medical industry, that was not that uncommon, you know, to, to say that we don't really know what's wrong with you. We can't figure it out. And we kind of assume, because we, we have such advances in, in medicine and other things today, that well, the doctors can always figure it out. They can always answer all the questions. And, and the reality is that they're limited because they, they're human beings. They, they don't, don't have infinite knowledge. Our bodies are so amazingly designed. Well, one of the resistances to accepting the fact that Jesus is our creator is the fact that if he is the creator, that makes me the creature, which means I am subject to him. And that's really, I think, the issue behind a lot of people's resistance to acknowledging creation, and specifically the fact that God created them. Because if I am made, if I'm a creature and he is my creator, he designed me, he made me, he has authority over me. And uh, many people will say that. I, I've heard testimony of, of uh, people that, who were uh, devout atheists and, and devout evolutionists 
and who have testified the fact that the very reason they do not acknowledge God as a creator or acknowledge creation or divine hand in creation is because that if they do that, they realize that puts them in subjection then to the creator. So all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. You know, you take apart a watch and take off all of its parts, lay it on the, on the table. Maybe if we let, let all those parts sit there for a long enough time, they'll eventually come together and form a watch again. Or maybe something better. No, it's not going to happen. It takes a designer. It takes a creator. It takes someone who has knowledge to put those things together. Jesus Christ is the one who made you. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. All things were made by him. And, and Paul says in Colossians, by him all things even today consist. He is the glue that holds everything together. It is the power of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. So he's God who came in the flesh. He is the creator of the world. Go on in verse 4, he, it says, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. First of all, he is the life of men. He is life. This speaks both of eternal life as well as life in this world, physical life. If he is the creator, then he is responsible for life. Not just eternal life, but true life. Jesus said in the Gospels that he came into the world that men might have life but that we might have it more abundantly. Life does not come, Jesus said, in the abundance of things which a man possesses. People think, if you really want to have a great life, <coughs> if you really want to live, you know, as people would use that expression, then it comes from accumulating things, having things, having possessions. I'll tell you, that's not so. It's what the world wants you to believe. It's what the commercial world wants you to believe. It's what billions and billions of dollars are spent on advertising to make you think that if you use a certain toothpaste, everyone's going to love you. And if you have the right shampoo, you know, that's over. Everyone's going to think you're the greatest thing in the world. And, I mean, it is, it is done to influence us to purchase their products, but reality is that that's not life. I mean, Solomon, at the end of, uh, of, of the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, the richest, most wisest man uh, to have lived, uh, said that basically it comes down to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. That's, that's what life boils down to. And, and if you try to live life apart from God, there's an emptiness that's there. I've often heard... Uh, one of our missionaries, we support him here at Calvary, uh, Mike Reddick, uh, make the statement, and this is so true. He says, man is born with an empty spot within his heart. It's an empty spot that only God is designed to fill. And, and no matter what you may try to put in place of God, it never fills, it never satisfies. It's only that relationship with God, because to know him is life. To not know him is not to have life, to be void of that life, to be empty of that life. 
And I know people think, oh, if only I had this or that. No, Jesus is the bread of life. I've told you this story before. Those of you who have been here for a while, you've heard me tell this story. But I, I remember when I was going through seminary, I uh, worked for a moving company. And we would move people from I mean, all over the place. But I, I particularly was... I was given the job one time to move this man from San Francisco, I think it was South San Francisco, to Antioch, California. And I went to his house, I began to hear his story, and found out that he had inherited, um, it was an RV dealership, I guess it was. Anyway, uh, and he was selling that for $8 million. So this man had basically just come into receiving $8 million, which... A lot of money today, but this was, you know, 20-some years ago, almost you know, 40 years ago, so it was a lot of money back then. And um, he was telling me how wonderful life was going to be. Now, I honestly don't know why anyone with $8 million would move to Antioch, okay? <laughs> uh, sorry if you're from Antioch or have people, friends in Antioch. I've been there. Uh, if I had $8 million, I don't think I would probably move to Antioch. It would not be my first choice anyway. But he was telling me how he was buying this house, and it just had, everything was wonderful. Uh, it had grapevines growing up the back wall. And uh, it had a, 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 a koi, you know, little fish pond. And it had, he was telling me all about it. It was just, it was great. So, okay, we did it. We, we did his move. Everything went fine. About a year later, I was still working for the moving company, and the office called and said, you have a special request. Someone asked particularly for you, and, 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 they, want you, and it was, they wanted to move from Antioch to South San Francisco. Now, Antioch was not my territory, so it was, that was what was so unusual, because I, I would usually not do this, but they specifically asked for you. Who in the world? And I thought, I wonder if it's that guy that I moved to Antioch. Sure enough, it was. So I go out to see him, to set up his move, and I mean, life was miserable. Uh, he told me how that in that year, all his family had fought over the money, and no one spoke. His wife had left him, his kids wouldn't speak to him, and everything was bad. I mean, the grapes were horrible on the, on the back fence, you know, the fish stunk in the koi pond. Uh, like, he said, all, I remember him saying, I just wanted to try to get back and get my life back to as normal as it can be. Because he found out that money did not satisfy. Life is not found in the abundance of things possess, you possess. And I could take you, and I've been to many places around the world where people have virtually nothing, at least compared to what we have. And they are full of joy and happiness. Uh, one of the happiest people I met one time was a a pastor's wife in, um, in Kenya. We were out in the country in this little village that, that where basically there was, was not much of anything. Not much, not I don't think they had electricity. I don't think they had plumbing. I don't think there was a dirt floor, a, a mud hut, and a thatched roof. And uh, she served us beans and I can't remember what else. Beans and rice or beans and something. And, but there was a joy that she had. And I, I can tell that story over and over and over again, similar situations. Very little in possessions, but great joy, because life does not consist of the things you possess. 
Jesus is the bread of life. He is the life of men. And then it says in the same verse that that life was the light of men. And the light, verse 5, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He is the light of men. In a world of darkness, in a world of confusion, Jesus Christ is light. What does that mean? He brings sense to a world of darkness. What happens in a room or a world of darkness when suddenly there is light? Also, you see what's around you. You understand why you kept falling because you're under, there are things all over the floor that you were tripping over that you did not see in the dark. You understand why people do the things they do because now the light is on. We live in a world that's very dark. And it's always been dark, but it just seems like as the light of the gospel has been hidden in many parts of the world, that darkness in some, pa- some places seems to be getting even more dense and, 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 and more dark. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that shines in the darkness. And some people don't like that. You go to a, you know, a dark room and all of a sudden someone turns on the light. People don't like that. Oh, my eyes, it hurts. That's what happens when the light of Jesus Christ comes in this world. When the righteousness of Christ is seen and, and, and compared to the, to the life of those people don't like it. Oh, the, the Bible says that, that you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Oh, I don't know if I like that. The Bible says that, you know, this is, a, this is righteous and this is sin. I don't know if I like that. Light has come into the world. And, and whether you like it or not does not change the reality of whether it is correct or true or not. I don't know, have you ever found yourself in a place of total darkness? I remember we, had a, we were interviewing a staff member years ago for the school, church, can't remember which exactly, maybe both. And we went out through the caves at the, pinnac- at the Pinnacles. And um, I think at that time, I think there's maybe, I don't know, I haven't been there for ages, but there was an easy way and a hard way. We went the easy way. But it was still dark. We went to a place that was still, and, and the person we were bringing through the cave was just going really slowly. I didn't quite understand why they were having such trouble until we got to the light. And then I realized, well, that's why, because they have on their sunglasses still. <laughs> Going through the dark cave in their sunglasses, hadn't taken off, they couldn't see anything, you know. I couldn't see their hand in front of them. I, I kept saying, oh, it's so dark, it's so dark. Yeah, well, it's not that bad. You could say, well, yeah, you have sunglasses on. That's why it's so, so dark. But have you ever been in a place that was just so dark, I, I've been in places like, you know, some of these national parks and the caves are deep underground, like Mammoth Caves or, or Carlsbad Caverns, and you're underneath the ground. I remember one spot, they, uh, we got to this place, and, and the ranger who was leading the group said, I'm going to turn the lights off, but I'm only going to do it, I think he said, for eight seconds. He turned it off, and then you could not see your hand in front of your face. And then he turned it back on. He kept talking. And then he turned it on. He said, the reason I did that was because if you are here in utter darkness, any longer than that, you will start going crazy. You will start doing things that make, do not make sense. People will panic. 
Uh, he says, and that's happened before in places where people, are, they'll, they'll start running out and they'll jump off a cliff that they don't see is there because uh, they're just, they're afraid of the darkness. The darkness makes them crazy. Explains a lot that's going on in the world today, doesn't it? That we have a world that is in spiritual darkness. They don't understand why they were created. They don't understand why they are here. They don't understand what life is about. They are looking for anything and everything that will make sense out of life except in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, the light of men. And then it goes on to say in verse 7 through 9, we read um, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which, light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He is the prophesied Messiah. Malachi said, the closing of the Old Testament, that, that one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's a reference to John the Baptist. That's spoken of in the, in the Gospels. We'll not go there, but that... But, John basically identified himself, or Jesus identified John as, as that Elijah which was to come. He came before the Messiah as a witness to warn or to announce to men that, that the Messiah was coming. It says John bore witness to him. He was the forerunner, a voice crying in the wilderness. He is the one that the world has looked for, the Jews have looked for. We could go through, if we took the time, we could, we could do a whole series of messages on prophecies which Christ fulfilled. Everything from the place of his birth to the virgin birth to uh, his fleeing into Egypt. Uh, we could talk about his life. We could talk about his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Scores and scores of prophecies that have been and were fulfilled particularly by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Isaiah 53 is such a description of the death and suffering of Christ. Uh, and it's hard to read that chapter in Isaiah 53 without identifying Jesus as the Christ. And, and, and many times um, people who are from Jewish heritage or, 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 or involved in Orthodox Judaism have been asked and confronted with those passages. And, and many will say, well, you know, I, I see where you get that, that this was maybe the Christ, but that can't be true. It has to be symbolic. It has to mean something else. When the truth is right there in front of them. Jesus Christ was the Messiah who was promised. John chapter 4, verses 25 and, and 26, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and uh, he, she has been asking about... Uh, who should she worship? Where should she worship? Verse 25, after Jesus responds to her, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, that's the anointed one, the word we, from where we get the idea of Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the emphatically saying, I am the Messiah. Remember the famous passage where, where Jesus is with his disciples at um, um, there at um, 
Philip, Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, before the, the uh, big mountain that was there and Jesus there, it says that he would build his church and, and, and the gates of hell would, would not uh, prevent it. In, the, in that midst of that conversation, Philip mentions to him, he says, uh, uh, or Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And he said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, Jesus said, but who do you say? <coughs> Excuse me, that I am. And Simon Peter, Peter answered and said, you are, notice, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Jesus claimed to be and identified himself as the Messiah. And, and that's what John is saying here. He was a witness to the one who was to come. And then he is also described here as a Lamb of God. If you go on to verse 29, Later in this passage in, in uh, John chapter 1, you, you read where uh, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is identified with that Old Testament lamb that was sacrificed on the, on the Day of Atonement the Passover lamb, who was the perfect picture of that perfect lamb that would someday come uh, to die for the sins of mankind. Isaiah identifies him in chapter 53, which we already referenced, but it talks about Christ. It says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. The, the, ma the manner, the 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 behavior of Christ was as that lamb being led to a slaughter and identifies him as that perfect lamb of God. That, that's why in the Passover there are such specific details as to how the Passover lamb was to be taken and was to be eaten. Why none of its bones was to be broken. Why? Because it is a, it is a picture of the lamb of God that would come, the Messiah who would come to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God who died for you, who died for me, who willingly submitted himself to a cruel death on the cross in order to, to atone for our sins. And then finally here, he is the gift of God. Verse 12, back in John chapter 1, uh, Let's start back at verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This Savior, this one who came, the Son of God who took flesh, the Word who became flesh, who created the world, came unto his own. 
into the world that he had created. But his own, his own people did not recognize and did not receive him. The Jewish people, the, the ones who, who, for whom he came as their Messiah, the Savior, the one who was identified in all the Jewish ceremony and Levitical practices, that Lamb of God came but was rejected. But, he says, but as many as received him, the gospel was offered to those beyond just, just the Jewish people. As many as received him, to them gave he the right, the authority, the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. The work that God has done in us, changing us, transforming us, which you could not do on your own strength, God did for us through the grace of through his grace, and through the power of his son. He came into his own, his own rejected him. You know, it, it, it's interesting how gifts came about in the whole um, connection with Christmas. I was just reading an article on this this, this past week. Uh, it was actually the Christmas tree and the giving of gifts. Really, pretty much, they could trace back, started to Martin Luther. Uh, because he did not like the fact that um, other of the ceremonies, people got kid, their, his children were getting more excited, children were getting more excited about other things than about the birth of Christ. And so uh, it was really his idea. He brought in the tree, decorated it, uh, the symbolism of a living tree, the life, and the idea of, of the giving of gifts really pretty much began there with Luther and in, in Germany, uh, well, pre-Germany with him. And, uh, but we identify so much of Christmas with giving. And, 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 and really it is appropriate, at least in the sense that the greatest gift of all was Jesus Christ. The gift of eternal life through the person of Christ, through his coming into the world. So that if you will receive him, not reject him, but receive him, it says, to them who believe, you have eternal life. To receive him is to believe on him, is to put your trust in him, is to accept what he has done for you as payment full for your sin. To not be dependent on something else, but to be dependent upon Christ and on him alone. You know, you really cannot believe in Christ and something else to save you and still believe in Christ. If, you, if you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, it's Christ alone you're trusting. And a person says, oh, I believe in Christ, but I think you have to be baptized in order to be saved. No, because you're now trusting in your baptism. You're adding that to the finished work of Christ. Oh, I, I believe in Christ, but I think you have to keep the Ten Commandments. No, because you're no longer believing in Christ. To receive him is to believe that he died for you, paid the price of your sin, that he alone saves you, and not any work that you do. We should do all those things. We should keep the commandments. We should go to church. We should, do all, be, we should be baptized as a, as a believer. All those things are important, but those things do not save us. It's that finished work of Jesus Christ, what he has done. And when you receive him, then he gives you the right, the authority, the power 
to become a son of God. He comes to live within you. The spirit then comes to indwell you. And you then become his child, adopted into his family, now a rightful heir of Jesus Christ. The question I'd ask of you then is, have you received him? Because who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's God who became flesh. He's the creator of the world. He's the one who created you, formed you. He's the life of men. He is the light of men. He is the prophesied Messiah. He's the Lamb of God that was, was, was stricken for you, slain for you. And he is the gift of God. The question is, have you received him? How tragic to think at Christmas time, so many gifts will be given, so many gifts will be received, and yet the greatest gift of all is often rejected. Without Christ, there's not life. Without Christ, there's not light. Without Christ, there's no new birth. Without Christ, there is no hope in a dark world. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I, I encourage you this morning to put aside your pride, put aside whatever distractions may be distracting you, whatever reason, arguments you've kind of assembled against trusting Christ. And this morning, or today, put your complete trust in him and in him alone. Let's bow our heads in prayer.